Welcome to Monday Mornings with Michelle, the new business podcast. Whether you're kicking off your day or kickstarting your business, Michelle is going to kick your ass into next week with the essential fours. Strategy, systems, support, and state of mind. Now, welcome to center stage, Michelle Nedelec. peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. I am so glad that you're here with us today because I have most amazing guest here, Scott. Scott, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, thank you, Michelle. I'm very glad to be here. Awesome. So give us a 5,000 foot view of who you are and what you do. Well, uh, investors hire me because they're sick and tired of riding that roller coaster of market risk, the high advisor fees and insufficient tax savings. So I've reverse engineered the way banks and the wealthy use their money so my clients can become their own bank, their own virtual banker. Bottom line, I help them recover most of their taxes and stack their existing investments on top of a predictable foundation that's safe, liquid, and tax-free guaranteed. Um, I'm Scott Schwartz. My home base is Kansas City, Kansas, and I've been in the insurance and financial industry for over 30 years now. I know I don't look any older than 29, but, <laughs> but it's true. Um, and so I've, and, but really very few of those years have been on the entrepreneurial side. I, I was a corporate worker for you know, a couple of different major insurance companies. Um, working nine to five um, and learn the business that way before going out on my own to build my business. Very cool. So what made you decide to go out and start your own? Um, basically, to be blunt, the fact that I'm unemployable. Um, I, in 2015, I lost my job. Um, let me back up a little bit. I had gotten downsized, uh, downsized out of a, a good job, real good job, um, and went into a depression that was right when the economy was really bad, 2007, 2008. And uh, the economic pressure was really having an effect at home because my then wife and I had uh, issues that went way beyond finances, but then when finances became an issue, that really aggravated the situation. Went into a depression, um, and it was bad. It got to the point where I was self-medicating and became an alcoholic. Later on, after getting back uh, in the insurance industry with another company, I had the brilliant idea one day to sneak a bottle of vodka in with me to the office when I returned from lunch and drink it there at my desk, I was discovered and terminated. And that led to my rock bottom moment. You hear about addicts have this rock bottom moment and it's not until then that they wake up and realize, hey, I've got to make a change. And so that was it for me. The uh, uh, a few days after that, I wrote out my suicide letter. Um, I had three, block, three boxes of sleeping pills in, in a bag, 
in one hand, my car keys in the other. I was going to go down to the garage, start up the car with the door closed, and that was going to be it. That was November 2nd, 2015. Right as I was about to open that door, a, a number of things happened earlier that day to make me question what's going on here is, you know, is God trying to tell me something, trying to tell me not to do that. And then just as I was about to open that door, a friend of mine calls, hey, Scott, I see we, we had plans to get together that night. He says, I see you're not here. I just wanted to call and make sure you're all right. Okay, someone's trying to tell me something. So I set the sleeping pills and the keys down and decided I needed to just go lay down and think for a while. And that day that was going to be my suicide date actually is now my sobriety date. Haven't touched a drop since. Nice, congratulations, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Very so, cool. Yeah. yeah. So from that, I'm like, you know, okay, now what am I gonna do? Um, and I, I started working for an agent and then, an insurance agent in a local area there in Kansas City um, for almost a year. And it was, it didn't pay very well, but it kept me very busy, which was far more important at that time and in those circumstances, keep my mind and my time occupied. And almost a year later, I decided to strike out on my own on the sales side. Nice, good for you, that's awesome. So how did, all right, let me put it this way. So you said earlier in the intro that you're helping people set up their finances the way that the wealthy do with yeah. a foundation in place. So explain that to me and how how does that make you different? <laughs> well, generally speaking, people go about handling their finances all wrong. Um, the most common approach is listening to their broke friends and relatives knowing they've got no qualifications, knowing that they're struggling themselves, but they don't want their friends to, to think badly of them or to think that they're, you know, oh, I'm too good for you. I've got, you know, the best financial advisor in the world and you don't. Um, so that's a very common mistake. Also, uh, they may go about trying to figure it out on their own uh, with no help and trial and error the, the, the difficulty there is, of course, time only moves in one direction. So if you use trial and error, and it's more error than it is trial, then what do you do? You can't go backwards and start over. And when it comes to your money, time is critically important. Um, and then another thing they do is follow the conventional wisdom, I'll call it, uh, that kind of surrounds us regarding debt, finances. Um, investing. Um, those things may have some benefit. In many cases, they do. In, in many cases, they don't because generally they're tied to that roller coaster ride, the market risk. And uh, so many times they, they fail at that because there's no certainty. There's no guarantee. So taking some of the things I had learned from my industry experience, I'm like, okay, let's forget trial and error. Why not copy the experts? Why not look at the banks, the wealthy, 
study what they do and copy it. Do the same things they do. And it's, it's really quite interesting to kind of take the academic view of that and study what they do. Because what the banks do and what they tell us to do, two very, very different things. You deposit your money in, in bank one, they don't go up the street to bank two and say, hey, I wanna open a savings account. I wanna open a CD. They treat their own money very differently from what they tell us to do. They tell us basically, give it to us. We, it's, it's secure here. We, we've got a vault and everything. Even though every time you go to a bank, the vault door is open. Why is that? Every time you walk in, the, the vault door is wide open. The pens are chained to the desk, but the vault door is wide open. Never understood that. But they play up security, dependability, liquidity um, for us so that we give them their money and then they treat it completely differently themselves. Yep, absolutely they do. So um, fascinating kind of preface to this kind of thing. Um, so you said you studied the wealthy people. They don't usually give a lot of information out about what they're actually doing. <laughs> How'd you get don't. that? Um, you're, you're right. They don't. And of course, they don't have to. Um, they like to keep those little trade secrets. Um, some, I'll, I'll give you uh, one example, Michelle. Um, one of the companies that takes a very interesting approach that is subject to the Freedom of Information Act is public universities. We can look at, and, and I'm thinking specifically of an example I'm very familiar with, head football coach at the University of Michigan, Jim Harbaugh. His contract when he was hired, very interesting. And of course, he uh, is under no obligation and, and to my knowledge, hasn't really spoken publicly about details of it. But since the university is subject to Freedom of Information Act, there has been publicly available information published about interesting, uh, an interesting approach in his contract. And it's not just him, it's, and it's not just the University of Michigan. There's others that do the same thing with high profile employees. We're talking multi-million dollar a year employees and the way they structure those contracts to really set up um, you, you could call it the golden handcuffs, the golden parachute. There's all those corporate terms that, like, that uh, companies used to throw around that ensure a good deal for them, ensure job security for the highly compensated employees and do it very if efficiently from the financing standpoint to make it work and quite frankly, to make it sound more palatable to fans who know perfectly well, these are public institutions that are using tax money to pay these high salaries. Okay, and what, what are the, some of those ways? Okay, um, 
The, the interesting approach specifically that I'm talking about is the use of a high cash value life insurance policy. Now, you could wonder, how, what does that have to do with compensation? Well, the way that contract was structured, there was $5 million put into the policy upfront, and then a commitment of $2 million a year for the following five years. Okay, so that's a total of $14 million going into a policy that is going to generate high cash value. The way it's structured then is what's called a split dollar agreement between university and the coach. And it's an agreement as to how the policy is gonna be funded and a corresponding agreement as to how the cash value will be distributed. How much goes to the coach and when, how much does the university as owner of the policy keep? Now, the money that they put into the policy is a loan. It was a loan to the coach. And as long as he stays for that time period, then he doesn't owe it back. All right, so there's the incentive there. They've got their man and we're confident he's gonna stay for the duration of this contract. He's also got the security of knowing that in addition to the compensation that he receives, the salary he receives, which in and of itself is very generous, very high, he's got the cash value to draw from whatever the percentage is, and, and we don't know, whatever the percentage is of the split dollar agreement, he has access to take it out as a loan that he can have as extra liquidity for personal purposes. And of course, in the event that he dies along the way and does not fulfill that contract, it's still in force, his kids get the money. So it's a, you could call it a win-win-win. You know, university accomplished what they wanted to. He got what he wanted, you know, very high compensation. Uh, in fact, he came from the pro ranks from the NFL down to college, which is generally a step backwards. They had to get creative to be able to compete in order to recruit him. Um, and of course, I could make jokes that maybe the football fans in Michigan regret that because some of them aren't too happy that he has that long-term job security. But that's another subject for a different podcast, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sorry, but I cannot. <laughs> it's not that I won't comment on, on college football. It's I have zero background <laughs> on that one whatsoever. So the no, day I show up at one game, I'll you know, I will be infinitely more able to have this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that's not important. Um, you, you may, you asked a really good question there. How would we know how the wealthy use their money? Well, the, here's an example, you know, both from the coach's standpoint and from a large corporation, the university standpoint of how they can structure a financial tool, a financial vehicle in order to accomplish very specific objectives that give safety, liquidity, that allow for tax-free withdrawal of those funds, it checks all the boxes to help 
to, to help the wealthy, in this case, really exponentially grow what they have at their disposal. So what would, would this uh, principle still apply if somebody didn't have wealth? Say they, they weren't wealthy, they didn't have enough to live off the, <laughs> the cash value. Yeah, there's, well, in a word, yes. Um, it wouldn't have the kind of immediate traction that a policy that has $14 million put into it uh, would have. But yes, definitely, someone can use the same approach. Say, for example, uh, an entrepreneur, maybe it's just a husband and a wife team that uh, have combined to run a business. They could, in effect, you know, have a agreement, a split dollar agreement, key man, coverage. There, there's a number of advanced strategies that they could put together. Um, I even have a strategy whereby the premiums they pay on the life insurance policy would be tax deductible, uh, something that you know very few even insurance brokers are aware of. But yes, there's a number of uh, things that they could do at much lesser dollar amounts that can give that kind of safety and that kind of growth. The key really in this approach, Michelle, I, I already mentioned one, that you can withdraw the money tax-free. So the, the money that you take out is, you could say it's an advance on the future death benefit is, is how it's treated. So it's not, it's not technically a loan on your money. It's a loan from the company, yes, but the money stays there intact and continues to grow that compound interest at the same rate as if you didn't take anything out. So now you've got that measurable, safe foundation for the money where even if you do take advantage of the tax-free withdrawal, whether it's to invest or whether it's to pay off debt, either way, you've got that flexibility to decide what you're gonna do with it. And that money in your account doesn't drop. It's like you're scooping water out of a bucket, but the water level keeps growing rather than dropping. It's still gonna gain that compound interest uninterrupted, even as you move money in and out. Interesting. So now I'm assuming in the case of the university and, and the coach that it was a lump sum payment and and that was the it just self-perpetuates, so to speak. In the case of a business owner that doesn't have 15 million to just drop on a policy, mm -hmm. I'm assuming that as they're withdrawing money, though, there are limitations and things like that if they're still paying monthly fees, et cetera. There there are, yes. There are limitations, but let me tell you the logical reason for them. The way this particular plan works is it's, it's set up with the IRS code 7702 in mind. And, and I'm referring to the United States Internal yeah. Revenue Code <laughs> yeah. 7702. And, and what that code means is think of it as the, the line where insurance ends and investment begins, okay? So as long as you stay under that line, now 
you can take money out and it's tax-free. As soon as you go over that line, now it's considered an investment and your gains are taxable. So it's very important that we clearly define that line and know where it is and make sure we don't put too much in. But we want flexibility too, especially when you're talking about entrepreneurs. Sometimes, you know, they'll tell me, you know, I had a good year last year. I can put in X uh, per year or maybe even per month. But I don't want to commit to that because I don't know how next year is going to be. So they want to have some wiggle room there. And I can set it up that way where, you know, we we plan on giving putting in this much but that IRS 7702 line is up here, they can take advantage of that. We have a good year, let's put in more to, to gain that interest and to gain more in dividends. But if it's kind of a lean year, that's all right. We, we've set the, the floor low enough that we can handle it. Very cool. Um, I had a question. What was it? What was it? It was it was on my brain. I'm going, don't forget, don't forget it. I shouldn't have said that. I should have said I'll remember. Um, <laughs> that happens in my brain, but that's all okay. pencil is better than a sharp mind. There you go. Um, it was. You said this policy. So does that imply that um that policies are different? Yes. It, well, they're they're customized. It, they're not one size fits all by any means. A lot of times, um Frankly, cash value life insurance policies get a bum rap in a lot of circumstances. And a lot of that is deserved because if you go up to your average life insurance agent, broker, and you say, hey, I want a life insurance policy. Okay, fine. You know, I'll bring you a quote. Here's what you owe. And really, it doesn't generate the kind of cash value necessary to really fuel a financial vehicle like this. I'm talking about a particular type of structure on this policy that builds cash value fast, where generally only three or four years after that policy goes in force, someone's cash value has already exceeded the money that they've put into it. And again, that, so, so they've got positive cash flow on, on what they've spent and it's all liquid. When they go to take that money out of the policy, application has one question on it, Michelle, one question, and that's how much do you want? That's it. Because what happens is the company collateralizes their cash value. There is no written uh, repayment schedule. A person could choose to not pay it back at all. Of course, it wouldn't remain that effective vehicle to fund further investing if they were to choose to do that, but they would have that option. They could continue you know, contributing into the account, into the certificate, it grows and grows and grows. I have software that shows if, if they're using this to pay off debt. For example, you've got an entrepreneur that's got a lot of money tied up in equipment. 
Okay, fine. We can use it to pay off your uh, loans for, for that heavy equipment construction company, for example. Um, and I've got software that shows, okay, we're going to pay uh, debt number one in this month, specific month and year. Debt number two comes here. Debt number three comes here this month, this year. And when that time comes, take the money out of the account, eliminate that debt completely, it's gone. And the whole time that account continues to grow as if they didn't take any money out. That's the power of this approach. Very cool. So how does that work? Or am I asking for the magic sauce there? Like how do you get an investment that's not market dependent, even if it's real estate, even if it's something else, it's okay. still gonna have a market. Fair question. And, and I've got no problem answering it for you. Awesome. Um, so it's all contractual, the, the performance of the policy. Okay. So it is not tied to the market. You're not riding that roller coaster of stocks, mutual funds. Right now, generally speaking, the guarantee that you get on this type of policy is right around 4%. Uh, give or, it depends on the company. It may be like 1% below, 1% above. Mm -hmm. yeah. These are mutual companies. In other words, policyholder owned, not publicly owned, not on the stock market. Okay. And, and I'll get to why that's a key factor here in just a moment. So you've got, first of all, a guaranteed rate of return on that policy for the money that you put into it. Let, let's use a nice, nice round number, let's say 4%. So now the time comes, you want to withdraw money, whether it's to invest in your own business, whether it's to pay off debt, whatever the reason may be. Generally speaking, the spread is around 1% or less. I've seen it even be zero. So let's use 1%. So you're, you've got a guaranteed return of 4% and the loan percentage is 5%. You're borrowing it from the, that insurance company's general fund. It is not coming out of your cash value. Okay, so we've got Michelle. Oh, you muted. Sorry. So, so let's let's use an example. Let's say here's Michelle's account right here, and you go to let's say Mass Mutual. You say I want to take out this loan to pay off this debt. Great. Here's your money. The money didn't come out of here. It didn't come out of your account. It came directly from Mass Mutual from the insurance carrier, and they say, okay, Michelle. 5% interest on that loan. At the same time, we're guaranteeing you, we're guaranteeing you 4% on an account that didn't drop at all. Okay. So you're continuing to earn interest on that and you're continuing to pay into the policy. The same amount. Now, part of the, the planned uh, planned periodic premium, let's say you're paying monthly. So every month you're contributing money into your account. So it's building, it's paying off your loan. Remember there, there was no drop in your account. It's continuing to get the compound interest. 
So now you're paying Mass Mutual and it's going to your loan until it's your loan's paid off. Now, okay, how much is that account built up? Is it to the point where I can pay off debt number two now, pay off more of that heavy equipment? Great, let's do it. And we just repeat, rinse and repeat the whole time. That spread being only like 1%, save, and let's compare that to say maybe an amortized business loan where a bank's charging you 10% amortized that actually comes out to close to 100% when, when you're uh, in the early months of uh, that amortization of that agreement, night and day difference as far as the uh, amount that you're paying on that loan. Don't feel sorry for the insurance carrier, of course. They have no risk. Sometimes people tell me, but this sounds too good to be true. Don't worry about the insurance carrier. They're just fine. They have no risk because they have your policy. In the worst case scenario, if you die, okay, we just subtract the amount you owed us from the death benefit. Believe me, they get theirs and they ensure that. It's contractual, they will get theirs. At the same time, you'll get yours too. You've got that guarantee. Now, in addition to the guarantee, the reason why it's such a key that this is a mutual company, policyholder-owned company, is now at the end of the year, let's, we're using Mass Mutual in this agreement, let's say they have a profit and they have every single year for well over 100 years now. So what does that mean? It means instead of the profits going to stockholders, the profits go back to policyholders because it's a policyholder-owned company. So now you didn't just get that 4% interest, you got dividends also on top of it. So that will Almost always, dividends aren't guaranteed. So I can't say all this, although typically, like I say, they've paid every year for over 100 years. Mm -hmm. um, but, but still, I can't say it's guaranteed. It's not. Of course not. But generally speaking, that more than makes up for that 1% spread that you had as you were paying back that loan. Before we even talk about the, the guaranteed compound interest that you've earned, uninterrupted compound interest, you've already covered that spread. Win for the insurance company, win for the policyholder. Nice. So you also mentioned that after four years, you would have the, and I may have misunderstood this, so I will say, I will reiterate that you didn't say this. I heard you to say that in four years that um, that amount would double, basically the amount you've put in, which in my little brain, I go, well, that's like 20% interest. Okay, let, no, let, let me be clear here. Okay. Um, what I was saying is that sometimes, and this is not a guarantee, yep. um, sometimes three or four years, the person, the policy holder, the certificate holder will have recovered all of the premium they have paid in cash value. 
Now, this is, of course, assuming the policy was structured correctly, that we really skated that line on IRS 7702 very carefully. And this wouldn't be someone who was throwing in $50 a month either. We're, we're talking here about somebody that, that put in enough money for this to really gain some traction. But yes, I've seen it where someone in three years and four years um, has in their cash value equivalent or even a little more, they, they've crossed that break-even point where they have as much in their account as what they have paid into it. There's one thing to understand, and I know that might be hard to, to wrap your head around. <laughs> me and math, it takes me a while, but you know, we'll get there. <laughs> I, I didn't mean specifically you, Michelle. I no, mean, <laughs> I'm good with it. I, I totally know what I am. <laughs> All good. This is, this is like a three-legged stool. The, mm -hmm. the type of policy that I'm talking about has three facets to it. There's the base coverage, and then there's two particular types of riders on it. And sometimes there'll be a fourth as well. Um, but there's generally, there's at least those three, and it's the balance of the three that works that magic to create that early cash value. Awesome. So that was going to be my next question. And so I'm assuming that the way that that happens is because the base insurance amount is there and then they're increasing the amount that they're paying over that to fund the cash value. So to, make, to make that work where you hit that break-even point so early, the amount of the base coverage on that policy will be relatively low. I, I'm talking about how probably just 10% of the contributions that you've made have gone to the base coverage. The rest would have gone into the riders that really help to accelerate the accumulation of the cash value. And that's where a lot of times the broker, the insurance agent, fails their customer. Because to just do a whole life policy doesn't work that magic. If they aren't putting those other writers there and they don't have the proportion right, there's no magic there at all. There's no secret sauce there at all. All you've got is an insurance policy that frankly doesn't accumulate cash value very well. That type of policy is what deserves to get bashed by some of these financial entertainers that, that talk about whole life being a ripoff. That type of whole life, frankly, they're probably right in most cases. The type that I'm talking about, that we're talking about here, that people can use as that base, that foundation on which to invest is set up very differently. It's not your grandparents' whole life policy. This is, this is 21st century stuff here. Awesome. So give me an example of a Cinderella story of yours, one of your clients. Um, I... Um, I've got an example of an entrepreneur that used this. This was a dentist. Dentist had a lot of equipment loans. Imagine how much equipment a dentist has his money tied up in. Student loans, again, you know, lots of years in school, lots of debt invested in his own business. 
one challenge that he had in his business is he's got parents coming to him and their kids need braces. Parents go to the local banks in his area and the banks were gonna charge the parents 16, 18% on a personal loan so that they could get braces for their kids. Parents tell the dentist, I can't afford it, can't do it. We'll just have to come back later when we can. So he's got business walking out the door. In many cases, you know, they don't come back. I mean, that's a pretty drastic turnaround that they would have to make. And, and his business is dependent on his customers making that kind of financial turnaround to stay his customers. Mm -hmm. So here's what he did. He used this approach to pay off his debt. He's got his equipment paid off. He's got his um, student loans paid off. And he gets to thinking, hey, so I've set myself up. I've learned from reverse engineering the banks. I've set myself up to be my own virtual banker. And he thinks, why not take that literally he brings these parents back into his office and says, hey, you know what? I will finance your kids' braces at just 6 to 8% rather than 16 to 18%. Parents are delighted. They can afford that. The kids get their braces, and the dentist benefits two ways. Now that business isn't walking out the door anymore, and he's created a second stream of income. He took it literally that he's his own bank. He is now making interest off of these much more reasonable loans. His customers are delighted. He's delighted. He, now it's not just his hands making money, digging into people's mouths. Now his money is making money. Win, win. Count the kids that get their braces they needed. There's a third win. Everybody wins. So that's one uh, example that comes to mind. And, and I know sometimes when I tell other entrepreneurs of that, it just kind of shifts their thinking. Wow, you know, maybe I've got good customers that walk out my door that, that say, you know, I'd really love to, but sorry, I just can't afford it right now. And then maybe if, if they feel confident enough about it, I'm certainly not encouraging them to be reckless. But maybe if they feel confident that there's a relationship there, confident enough in that uh, customer that they'll really come through, that they have put their own financing into that deal uh, so that they're able to stop watching that business walk out the door. Very cool. I like that. So I know that some of the listeners here are going to want to have um, more of you. So how would they start their journey with you? Um, they can go to nevertoomuchmoney.com. That's my website. And the two is spelled out, T-O-O. That has all my uh, contact information on there. It also has links to all my social media. And I committed back on July 1st to doing a daily live stream. Um, that I do on Facebook, and then I convert into LinkedIn, into YouTube. It's all there on my LinkedIn, uh, my uh, YouTube channel, these different daily live streams. 
And there you get like little, usually about five minute nuggets at a time, little bite-sized pieces of me talking about this approach. And of course, there's more to this approach. I've, I've mentioned the insurance angle. Um, also in this process, reverse engineering the banks and the wealthy, I've learned things looking at how their corporate entities are set up and how uh, you, you hear someone talk about, oh, I don't need to do that. I've got a C-Corp, I've got an LLC, I've got a whatever. There's actually by combining different entities and the interrelation between them that you can greatly, greatly reduce taxes that you can take life insurance premiums, you can take your utilities payment on your home, your auto repair expenses, just things, personal expenses like that and make them a business tax deduction. So there's a lot more uh, to my secret sauce that I know time doesn't allow us to get into. Um, but to get back to your question, Michelle, the first step in uh, contacting me to find out more, go to nevertoomuchmoney.com or you can email me, scott at nevertoomuchmoney.com. Love that. That is awesome. So yes, uh, getting tax advice, lowering taxes is always a good idea to go and research always and good get thing. some sage advice on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, awesome. So I have to ask you this, Scott, and you may have already given me the answer to it, but I'll ask you anyways, because I might get a different answer. Sometimes you surprise me. At what point in life did you know that you were a special kind of crazy enough to become an entrepreneur? Um, well, like I said earlier, I kind of forced myself into it by uh, my own reactions to an extremely stressful situation. And of course I can't, undue time, um, but really it has in a way been a gift for me because I'm like, okay, I need to do something on my own and I need to make it work. I do not have a plan B. And that pushed me in this direction, this entrepreneurial direction. When I when I first found out about the approach that most of this conversation has been about, the insurance angle on it, I was very skeptical, very much so. I'm skeptical by nature. And I needed to study it. I needed to take this angle of, okay, I don't wanna use trial and error. I'm not gonna to listen to my broke friends. I'm going to study what the experts do, study what the banks, the wealthy, the Fortune 500 companies do. And I learned so much, so much you never learn in school. How the banks make money, how they get multiple streams of income, and how we can copy that. We can copy that same approach, create multiple streams of income for ourselves in the same way that dentists did. And there are other ways that other people do similar things that amounts to creating additional independent streams of income. 
what I found in myself is that starting to learn those things really spurred me on to learn more. And, and I'm a numbers geek, Michelle. I was a stats major in college. And that what that meant at in that time, at that era, that meant to me mostly sports stats. <laughs> that that those were the numbers that I really like to dig into. But digging into these financial stats, the kind of performance that these different financial vehicles produced, why is this one better than that? down to the numbers. How can I show by numbers that approach one is better than approach two? It really lit a fuel, uh, lit a fire. It fueled a fire under me to learn ever more and ever more. And um, I will probably never stop that proce process of learning and looking for additional value that I can bring to my clients. It's something that really spurs me on. And for me, there's no turning back. I just can't imagine going back to the nine to five grind now that I've uh, been able to put together a uh, process like this, learn, learn different processes, different uh, disparate processes, and combine them into a process that I've been able to help people have success with. Nice. I love that. This has been awesome and highly educational. So thank you very much for that. And I do value your time. So I appreciate that you gave oh, it to thank us. You, Michelle. That's thank awesome. You. So any last words for our peeps before we let you go? Um, well, I, I, I know you work mostly with entrepreneurs and there are dark days. Definitely. I've been, I mean, I gave you, you know, not even a thimble full of, of my life story there. I have been bankrupt. I have been on food stamps. Um, things were bad. Um, but there are brighter days coming. There, uh, when you believe in what you're doing and you find help, I, I didn't develop all of these different things myself, not my process. I've learned from here, I've learned from there, I've reverse engineered what the banks do here. That you've got to have help, you've got to partner with people, you've got to ask for help, you've got to embrace your vulnerability, make it your superpower. Um, from that standpoint, I wouldn't change a thing because if, if I would not have hit rock bottom and stayed in the corporate world, I'd probably still be there today, counting every penny. And who knows, who, who knows where I'd be today, but uh, believe in, in the process, look for help, look for help from the right people, not your broke friends, but the people who are succeeding um, and partner with them to go where they are. Love that. Thank you for that. That was awesome. This is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. If you know anyone who would make a great guest for the show, or if you have questions or topics you'd like me to discuss, reach out to me at michelle at awarenessstrategies.com or connect with me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to our show. I am all about being a resource center for entrepreneurs to give them the information and the support they need to make it in business. 
As such, I have Taking Your Business Digital Q&A every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Mountain. To register for that, go to awarenessstrategies.com slash digital. That's D-I-G-I-T-A-L. I look forward to meeting you and actually finding out how you are. So see you on the flip side.